All right, let's take our Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 4. If you've been with us the past few months, we've been going through the book of Philippians, and this is where we will end today in this book. I just want to give you a precursor of what we're going to be starting here for the second Wednesday night. This Wednesday will be the second part. I guess it would be the actual first message in our Wednesday night series on apologetics. And some of you say, Jeff, what in the world are we apologizing for? Well, we're not apologizing for anything. That's just the word uh, that comes from the Greek New Testament. And it is equipping people, preparing people to give answers to defend their faith when other people ask you, why are you a Christian? When people ask you the question, is there any evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead? When people make not so much a question, but a statement to say, how can you believe the Bible when it has has so many errors? Uh, How can you believe in God with science and so forth and so on? All of those objections. You say, Jeff, how would I prepare myself to talk to a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a member of a cult Or just a good old lost Franklin County redneck. I mean, how do you actually get from point A to point B in dealing with objections that people have to Christianity? We're going through that line by line. Let me give you what we're going to talk about on Wednesday, 7 o'clock. We're going to talk about the six major worldviews. How do you speak to someone about Christianity that does not come from a Christian background? The next week, we're going to look at five approaches to apologetics, how to be, and this is actually in uh, your newsletter. Some of you thought this was a typo, and it's not. Five major approaches to apologetics, how to become an MMA witness for Christ. And here, let, let me just break that down so none of you think that we're advocating violence-based evangelism, all right? When you talk to somebody about Jesus, do you know which way the conversation is going or will go? You hope it's going to go to Jesus, but what if it goes to these random directions? How are you prepared to give them answers? We're going to talk about that the week after January 23rd. We'll talk about what is truth. And finally, on January 30th, I'm excited to tell you guys this. Our year 2013, we believe this is where the Lord is leading us, will be the year of outreach. God has been very good to us. Amen? He's blessed us in so many ways. But what we have largely seen, people being saved, people coming to be integrated into this faith family, this church, uh, that has largely been from personal relationships, friends, family members, organic-based. We do go out on visitation sometimes, but it's to the point now that there are uh, a lot more people here um, than, than when we first started, when I came here a couple years ago. So here's, here's where we are, just to give you kind of the update on the state uh, of the church. It is more now as far as the visitation, the evangelism, than I can handle alone. It is more than our deacons can handle alone. It is more than even those of you who take it upon yourself to do, to go see people upon your own time. So here's what we need from you as a church family. This year, the last Wednesday of every month, we're going to meet over in the Fellowship Hall, next building, 7 o'clock, and we're going to go out and 
visit people, invite them to church. If you can share the gospel, share the gospel, get as far as you can. We'll have, if you're more comfortable with going to visit shut-in members or visit new people or folks that are straight up lost, we have all of that. We're going to organize it. So, there's a fine difference between saying, I want my church to grow. And yay, praise the Lord when people get saved. And once again, David, man, we love you so much. And I told him back there, I was like, isn't it a good day when you can give your testimony for Jesus Christ to be baptized biblically and then walk out a few minutes later and lay down a wailing guitar solo? Amen? You know what I'm saying? Like that, that, that's a, that's a good, that is a good day. All right. So here's the thing though. There, there often comes within church life, this thing like, boy, I want my church to do well. I want us to see new people reached. We want to see young families come to Jesus Christ. We want to, we want to see all sorts of people come. We want to do missions here and overseas, but my involvement stops with Sunday morning worship. Question. Why do you come if you're not willing to invest? You say, Jeff, you may run people off. Fine. If you're just here for a show, if you're just here to, to, to get your religious obligation taken care of so that you can leave... And by the way, we don't get out at 12 noon. Some We never get out on 12 noon anymore. We make it a point sometimes to go over just to say we're not going to be that church that locks God into an hour. Not to try to make anybody mad. I mean, if you have to, you know, take pills or meet somebody, it's a free country. But we're not going to be that church. But to walk out at 12.15, 12.30, 1.45, just kidding, y'all are getting freaked out already. Whenever it's over, and to walk out and say, I have done it, I'm good, I feel good about myself, that, my friends, is not faith, that is not true Christianity, that is called a joke, but it's not funny. If you truly desire to see people saved... You're going to try to do something about it. You see, now, Jeff, I'm not in the best health. I can't see at night or or whatever it may be. There's other ways that you can get plugged in and involved. But I am urging you, we'll begin this in earnest next Sunday morning for four weeks looking at a series called Reach Out. How God's Word not only obligates us, but informs and educates us on how to reach out. And this is like the only alliteration I've come up with a long time, so I'm... Bill, I'm really proud of it. Here we go. We're going to learn how to reach out to our friends, our family, and foreigners. Y'all like that? Everybody good? Three S in a row. So this year, 2013, it is the year of Rocky Mount Baptist Church organizing itself on a large scale. Not just, We're not sending scouting parties anymore, okay? If we can use a military metaphor, we are garnering every able-bodied man and woman student to say we will mobilize together because because people in Franklin County need Jesus Christ. And if you have not had your head in the sand, when you come here to church on Sunday morning, you probably know a few people that don't come to church or don't go anywhere. They may have been de-churched, been hurt in the church, and said, I'm just taking a break from it. Some of them are to the point where they say, I've never been to church. Here's the question. When we stand before God and He says, I placed you in Franklin County for this amount of years or this amount of decades, what did you do to bring my life-giving gospel to your friends and your family and often people that you may not even know? You see, if there is, this is goes old school, if there's a will, finish it for me. There is a way. The reason why a lot of churches do not do missions and they do not do outreach on any scale is because at the end of the day, they really don't want to. 
They hear a song like Inside Out. Whether they know it or whether they don't, there is nothing inside to even sing out because it's dead. And I just submit to you this morning, if I can be a a preacher, if I can be a follower of Jesus Christ before I was ever a pastor, and the fact that I'm surrounded by lost people on a huge scale, and that does not concern me, and that does not motivate me to hit my knees and when I'm driving down the road to pray for people, and to try to get together with the group, we call that a church. With like-minded people who believe that Jesus is real and hell is real and death is coming for every single person. And for me not to try to do something about it, but to say that I believe the Bible is real, that's unconscionable. Because here's what we say if we're not willing to do any more than simply come and to give and to listen and leave. We're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. I believe that heaven is eternal bliss in the presence of God forever. I believe that hell is a real place filled with real people and every single person that has never been saved placed all their faith in Jesus Christ goes to hell not for a short time but forever and ever and ever and hell never, the fires never go out. There is no door to get out of hell. If I say that I believe that but I live my life as if that doesn't exist, it calls into question everything. So whether you're new here, whether you have been here for many years, The Wednesday night, last Wednesday night, once a month, is just one drop in the bucket of what we pray the Lord will do through us as a church. You see now, Jeff, it kind of sounds like we're trying to become a big church. Well, I don't care what kind of church we become, but if we're a church that doesn't reach out, i just be very honest. This is a very blunt sermon this morning, if you haven't already noticed. Welcome to Rocky Mount Baptist Church, right? If, If I don't ever do anything about that, then it calls into question my whole belief system. You see, the way that you can tell what a person truly believes is to see what they do with their time and then what they support financially. Whether you're a new member, old, I want 2013 to be a year for us as a church to where we reach out to lost people. We're not trying to become any stereotypical church. But if we're a church that doesn't do outreach, then why would we call ourselves a church? Let's just change the name out on the front and call it Holy Huddle Baptist Huddle. You see, the difference is, am I excited when people are saved or am I willing to invest in the relationships that I already have Am I willing to get over myself to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ? Whatever God does with us number-wise, and He's blessed us in a great way with, with new people. Our goal is not simply, and I was just, this, is, this is my heart as your pastor, being as honest as I can. My goal is not just to get as many people as we can here on a Sunday morning. My goal as a pastor is to see how many people we can disciple and send out during the week so that people will come on Sunday. You see the difference there? Let 2013 be a time, a year, where you turn your eyes away from being solely focused upon your comfortability and turn it around to all of the people that you know that are without Christ and ask yourself the question, where would they go if they died right now? Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to go from verses 14 through 23 this morning, if we can get through all of it. 
The Bible says in verse 14, Philippians 4, this is the Apostle Paul. He's ending the letter here, writing back to the Roman colony at Philippi. And he says to his friends there, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me for my needs, sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing unto God. Notice verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about sacrificial living. And here's the driving thought that we're going to try to hammer home. It's that contentment, not circumstantial happiness, but biblical contentment requires you being counter-cultural. You got that? In order for you to truly have contentment in today's culture, you have to reject the culture and become counter-cultural. Let me give you a statement by an old school philosopher named Epicurus. He lived several hundred years before Jesus. He was a lost pagan Greek. And here's what he said, and I quote, Pleasure, particularly mental pleasure, is the highest good. In other words, what he taught was the philosophy known as hedonism. And hedonism says that the best thing for you to do in your life is to try to avoid pain as much as possible and surround yourself with things that make you happy or amuse yourself with intellectual pleasures that bring you happiness. But then on the other hand, there's a Christian writer named Philip Yancey who wrote in his book, Disappointed with God, and he said, Love is most pervasive. This is a good one to write down. Love is most persuasive when it involves sacrifice. Let that sink in. Love is most persuasive when it involves sacrifice. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul who says somewhat the same thing. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Check this out. Especially young people, check this out. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of... How many things, church? All things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as sewage in order that I may gain Christ. You see, our culture, whether we realize it or not, or whether you are a philosopher or not, our culture is largely Epicurean and hedonistic because it says and it tells you through movies and through advertisements and simply through what we have been told, but we don't actually think about what it means. Here it is. The way that you have a good life, the way that you gain happiness, the way that you pursue happiness is avoiding as many tough things as you can, and you try to grab a hold of what gives you pleasure. Now, if we've lived any amount of time, we know often the things that bring us quote-unquote pleasure are the things that also bring us tremendous amount of pain. Is that not right? 
things that look good. It seems, right? There's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can even know it? Some people say this, right? And like a lot of pop music, it talks about being led by your heart. Just listen to your heart, boom, boy, you say goodbye. Right, that song? Four of y'all have heard that song. Okay, alright, great, great, that's awesome. That's awesome. And now y'all know why I don't do a lot of singing up here. So, when the culture tells you you need to be led by your heart, and we buy into that, we're buying into something, like that's our GPS, that the Bible says you can't even know it because it's so corrupt. Remember when GPS first came out? And, and it always wants to get you back on the right track. Redirecting. 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 Shut up! Right? And you try to turn it off, you can't find the volume knob, and it's sending. And some of you have been on those GPS trips as well. And you know some programmer with a sick sense of humor is up there programming the satellite and like, watch this. They just think they're going to get to Troutville the quick way. And they've got you routed through cow fields. You are, I mean, you are going through woods, but the GPS says go that way. In the same way as you would trust a GPS that is messed up is the same rubric of life by saying, I've got to trust my heart and my happiness to get me to the place that I think I want to be. The Bible says the exact opposite. You say, Jeff, how do I come to the place of contentment in my life. 2012 for me has been a year of internal hurricanes. It's been a year of marital stress, of financial stress, and I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. What does God's Word say how I gain contentment? Look at with verse 14 with me. In order to be content, you must become countercultural by doing, number one, Adopting or integrating Christ-centered maturity by sharing in the suffering of others. Notice what the verse says. The Apostle Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. This word in the Greek New Testament is a really cool word. There's a word called koinonia. I don't think I've ever had you guys say this before. Y'all ready to say some Greek? Awesome. Yeah. Alright, okay, here we go. We'll say koinonia on three. One, two, three. Koinonia. One more time. Koinonia. That literally means fellowship. It means you are in, you are close, you are tight. It means that you've got friends and they know you're a friend. You are tight with a person. This word is actually so cool. This is my nerdness coming out this morning, just in front of everyone. It is the word koinonia, or a form of it, but on the front it has the word combined with Here's the thing. Not only is the Apostle Paul saying you guys had fellowship with me, but you had fellowship with me. You were with me. You were with me. You shared in my suffering. It means to be associated in some joint activity, to participate with, to be in partnership with. Write down these verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 
It's the same concept, same word. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So in the same sense that the Bible says, we are to avoid things that are sick and evil and and, and twisted and wrong. It's saying, have no part, but on the other hand, jump in with both feet, sharing in the suffering of other believers. Notice he says that you have there in verse number 14, you have shared with me um, in my trouble or my suffering. You say, Jeff, what does the word really mean? It means that which causes pain. It means that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you know of someone that is going through a painful, brutal, hurting process, it means that you jump in with them. It means that you do not, as remember when Jesus told the story of of the Good Samaritan? The man got jumped. He was beat to a pulp. And you had several characters who noticed his pain, but they crossed the road and tried to ignore his pain. The true gospel of Jesus Christ, when you get saved, you say, Lord Jesus, I'm not just ready to serve you of myself, but I'm ready to look for other people who need help. It means that you are a heat-seeking missile. It means that when you go to your job, that when you talk to your friends, you don't go there saying, what can you do for me? But you look for people who are hurting. You see, the tendency for you and I is is to surround ourselves with very solid people. And by the way, everybody needs a Paul. You do. You need somebody you can look up to. Somebody who can pray for you, teach you, smack you around a little bit if you get out of line. But all of us needs a Timothy. A a person who's younger. A person who is less mature in Christ. You see, when we change out the mindset of what can I get out of this, whether it's church, whether it's a family gathering, whether it is a dove shoot, and we go to it to say, Lord, who can I speak life into? Give me wisdom. Give me discernment to find the people... Not to be nosy or to be strange, but to find the people that are on the verge of letting go. The people that are on the verge of saying, I've had enough, this is it. And God, help me to pour into them. You see, when that becomes the the, the playbook of your life, you'll be so filled with joy. Amen. You will be so filled with joy because you are like Jesus. If you want to mark it down in your Bibles, back a couple of chapters, and we've referenced this time and time again. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the fulcrum, remember that? The, the fulcrum, the foundation there of the book of Philippians. It's chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus, um, it says, actually go back to chapter 2 uh, with me there in verse number 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Who though? He was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He did what church? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So what that means. This is so cool. That when you become really committed to Jesus Christ. You have adopted in your life following the one who had everything, follow me on this now, the one who had everything, but gave up everything to become nothing to those who deserve nothing. But in our world, we can get offended if people don't treat us the way that we think we should be treated. Shame on us. 
In fact, when we have that time to where people do not appreciate us, they do not show due reverence, like some of you Sunday school teachers, you stay up, you work like everybody else, you study your lesson, you're ready to go on Sunday morning, and then some of the lazy people in your class sleep in. And you, you, you show up, you're like, well, I was ready to go, but half the people are gone. And you can get a little bit ticked off. Y'all okay in this? Y'all alright? Now, I haven't had any Sunday school teachers come to me and say, Jeff, can you tell me where I can find a gun right now? I am just so, you know, not, that has not happened, okay? But, no matter what you're doing to serve Jesus Christ in the life of the church or at your home, when your husband or wife, we, we referenced this last week, when your husband or wife, your kids, when they don't appreciate you and you just want to hold them and just say, do you not understand what I've done for you? And then that still small voice of the Holy Spirit tells us, do you not understand what I've done for you? Do you not understand how long I was patient with you? And that will provide the patience that we need to deal with difficult people. If you're taking notes, just the fact, the biblical precedent of sharing with other people in their suffering goes back to Joab and Abishai. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. If you're a blood and guts type of warrior here this morning, if you don't mind a little bit of Old Testament violence, you'll love this passage. Although it may um, somewhat... Frighten your family if you put it on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt. But here's the story. Joab and his brother Abishai were coming to battle. They were coming to battle the Syrians. And here's what he said in verse 11. Joab said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to Him. Two brothers, back to back, facing armies. They split. They won the day. They said, if you need help, I am there. Question, are you willing to be there for people that you know? Number two, Ruth. In the book of Ruth, in chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16, her mother Naomi had lost her sons and had lost her husband and she was going alone as a widow back to Israel from Moab. And here's what Ruth said. She said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God my God. You see, she was committed. She said, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. Number three, Joshua and Caleb. I love the story of Joshua and Caleb. You may be familiar or may not. They were one of the two of the twelve spies that went into Canaan. And they came back and they were the only two that didn't have a negative report. Ever been around a group like that, right? It seems like they're the cold water committee. That's an old Baptist joke, right? It seems like everything is negative. Here's why this can't work. Here's why this is not good. But they came back and they began to give testimony. But Moses, Moses was the one having to give the truth. And the Bible says in Numbers chapter 14, but Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before Israel because the people were threatening to stone the leaders. Guess who shows up? Joshua. Caleb. They testify. They stand in front of the leadership. They say, Moses, Aaron, if you guys go down, it will be over our dead bodies. What dedication. Number four, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. Remember when Paul was there and he was, he was suffering? It says, 
In Acts 13, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called for them to do. You see, Barnabas was one of those encouraging types of people. Do you have a Barnabas in your life? Somebody that even though you may not be doing what you should, they're going to still be there for you. Isn't that good to have one? If you don't, why don't you get plugged into a Bible study here? We've got Barnabases here at this church. Their name is not Barnabas, but they can fulfill that role in your life. You know, sometimes we talk about fair-weather friends. I'll just be honest. If somebody's a fair-weather friend, they're not really a what? They're not really a friend. And the fact that if you're here today and you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you should be the greatest friend that any of your lost friends has ever known. When they get drunk, and I'm not being funny at all, when they get drunk and they're looking for someone to drunk call and they call you, that means that you are the light that they look for in the middle of the darkness. Some of you say, man, I know I know a friend, I know a family member, I know this person, and the only time that they call me is when they need something. Guess who they're looking to? They're looking to you. What has God done? He's placed you in their life to be a beacon of Jesus Christ. And number five, in Daniel chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were there. They wouldn't worship the 90 foot tall statue that Nebuchadnezzar, the psychotic king, had set up. And he said, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Can anybody say he had a little problem with anger and a little bit of an arrogance issue, right? Like, if you don't worship me, I'm going to burn you alive. You're like, really? Really? Supernaturally, God kept them alive. The king looked in and he saw a fourth person. And he says, it looks like the Son of God. Jesus was with them in the fire. And for us to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must take the initiative to get plugged in with other people. I don't know about y'all, but it can be so easy to get plugged in with one social circle, can it? Right? Those people to where we know us, that they know us, and then we know them. We've got stories that go back. And whenever we have a party or a fellowship or whatever you have, it's the same people that we invite over. And there has not been, or maybe there's not been in this past year, an element of outreach to say, I'm going to try to find people that are far away from Jesus Christ or people that are saved, that are just struggling. And when I have something at my home, when I go out, I'm going to look for those people who need a friend instead of surrounding myself with people that can simply help me. Y'all okay? When it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, that they shared in the suffering of the Apostle Paul. When you serve Jesus Christ, I want you to write down this quote, or if you can remember it, that's great too. Jerry Vine said this. He's the former pastor of First Baptist Jacksonville. He said that unless you do what you do for Jesus Christ, you will grow up to be a bitter old man or woman. But let me say it one more, one more time. Unless you do what you do for Jesus Christ, you will grow up to be a bitter old man. And here's what he means. That if you serve God in the power of the flesh, expecting and requiring people to acknowledge your faithfulness to God, you're setting yourself up for an epic failure. You know why? You're asking people to do something that... People really can't ultimately do. You're looking for the approval of people to prop you up and keep you going. And we should be encouragers. But at the end of the day, if I don't do what I do for Jesus Christ, the the first second I hear a negative word or hear someone say something that I don't agree with, I'm going to go to pieces. I'm going to get mad. I'm going to get defensive. And all of a sudden, I have shown my true 
colors. When people don't give you the appreciation, when, notice as the Apostle Paul says in the verses that followed, in verses 15, he says that no church entered into partnership with me except for you guys. Now, time out, stop. This is Paul. I mean, this is the guy who persecuted the church, who was famous for doing bad things. He got saved. God used him to write a large majority of the New Testament. And here he is in prison, and only one church helps him out. I, I mean, like, I can, it's one thing for people to not be nice to me, to not appreciate me, because I preach what he wrote. Little bit of a difference there. God used him to write the New Testament, but put yourself in his place. God uses you. He inspires His Scripture through your writing, and yet when it comes to the time when you get thrown in the slammer, only one out of the many churches that you have started sends what you need to help you out. How would most of us respond? You say, I'm somebody. I wrote what you guys are preaching in your church. And you say, not only that, but the only reason why you know the one true God is because I told you. I'm going to get another group and we're going to split off of that church and call it Second Baptist Church. But I praise God that the Apostle Paul, even though he was somebody, in his mind he says, I am the greatest of sinners. And when we lose that, I am somebody, my Sunday school class has to be just to my liking, the music and the preaching, it has to fit me. May God deliver us from that. Amen? It is not about us. And when we realize that, it is a whole new level of absolute freedom. You see, Jeff, how am I supposed to respond when people are not there when they should be there? Think about it this way. Whenever there's a drought, it causes the roots to go deep. Whenever people do not give due credence and due respect to you, it should cause our roots to go deep within the nature of God Himself. And to say, God, just like the psalmist, my mother and my father has forsaken me. People from the church haven't called. The family, there's drama there in that relationship. It was just strange. Christmas and Thanksgiving, I didn't enjoy it at all. But God, I know that You are my strength and my portion forever. And you go deep in Scripture. Your prayers begin to have backbone in them. You begin to really, not just read it to get through, you begin to really search to extract what God has for you. And it will do wonders in your life. Because if we had time, we'd go back to the Old Testament and say, most of the time when Israel started going down, it's right after they were up high. Do you realize that success is one of the most dangerous things that God could ever give us? If we're anything like the people in the Old Testament, every time they did well, they said, you know what? I don't need God anymore. We've got a good military. We've got a good economy. We've got a good king. We're set. And they forgot God and they began to follow after other gods. God had to bring in a foreign oppressor to bring the people back to their knees. So not only do we have to reject what the culture tells us about not joining in with the suffering, but we have to, secondly, we have to adopt Christ-centered growth and contentment through doing hard things. This is a statement that was in last week's outline we didn't get to. Um, those of you scholars here will know this guy, David Hume, uh, the famous skeptic and agnostic. Here's what he said. He said, all the goods of life united would not make a ma- happy man. You realize that several hundred years ago, and he lived around the time of the founding fathers, 
And a skeptic and agnostic realized that accumulation of goods could not bring happiness. But yet, in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, you would almost think that some Christians thought that it was the way to gain happiness. How do you give? Not just financially, but how do you give of your time in order to serve God? And then the Apostle Paul says, when they gave him this gift, he says, I pray. He says, not that I seek, in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What he was saying is, guys, I'm so excited that you've helped me out by giving me necessary things, but, but, it's not just that I want you to give me stuff, but I'm so excited that when you step out and sacrifice, when you reject a selfish culture, and when you sacrifice to help me in need, there is fruit that God bears in your life. And the word here for increase, it means to become more and more so as to be in abundance. Like that old uh, prank, if you ever pour a dishwashing detergent um, a little bit too much, and by... I, I try to stay away from this because I don't want to give people ideas, but if you ever turn on uh, the washing machine and you have that in there, you can cause bubbles to expand more and more and more and more. And you can also, if you're a kid and you do that, earn yourself a good whipping, right? And all the parents in the house said, Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, the Apostle Paul breaks down this metaphor even more there in verse number 18 when he says, The gifts that you sent were, number one, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here's what's going on. The fact that they gave sacrificially to the work of Christ and the fact that you give sacrificially to the work of Christ, it is to God a pleasing aroma. It's comparable to the Old Testament. Remember the sacrificial system? It was a sacrifice. They didn't just give that which cost them nothing. So the question from God's Word to you this morning, is your involvement with Jesus Christ, does it cost you something? Or is it simply based around your comfortability? Sacrifice, you stand in Jeff, does that mean that I'm just supposed to give more time, give more money? Because it seems like you talk about... Listen, we will never apologize for asking you to give to international missions. Never. We'll give you as many chances as possible to give to the work of Christ so that you can see His work go on throughout all the world. See, Jeff, does God just want me to do more? No, God does not want you to do more. If you want to make a note, Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, For you, speaking of God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So here's the thing. God doesn't just want you to give a bunch of stuff, to give a bunch of time. He wants you to come to a place of brokenness to where sacrifice is no longer like pulling teeth. But to sacrifice to God means, God, I know that you are the fullness of joy. I am going to give to you. I'm going to give to you. And sharing into suffering of others, sometimes people doesn't, doesn't make sense to them. They say, why do you, why do you, why, why, why are you so involved in the church? Why are you so involved with the work of Jesus Christ? And they may not understand what it means. Now, most of us want to have a meaningful life. I would say probably most of us would want to have a, a meaningful death. I mean, there's probably not any of us that, you know, would, would say, I want to, you know, just live a meaningless life. 
and have a meaningless death. And the way that you begin to gear towards that is investing your life in people who need the Gospel. Most of us in here have probably seen Rocky at one time or another. Rocky 1, where he goes the distance with Apollo Creed. And Rocky 2, to where he actually beats Apollo Creed. And Rocky 3, anybody remember? He fought Mr. T, right? I pitied a fool, okay? And in number 4, he fought the Russian. And number 5, he was like a broken, beat-up old man. All his money had been taken away. He lost it through someone ripping him off. And then the young prize fighter comes up, Tommy Gunn, and he says, I want you to, I want you to train me, Rocky. And so Rocky graciously, even to the sacrifice of his family, dedicates his time to training Tommy Gunn. Then Tommy Gunn realizes that he's so big and bad he doesn't think that he needs Rocky anymore. So he challenges him to that street fight. Here's this old beat up, punch drunk boxer. Fighting this young, just strapping beast of a man. Then Tommy Gunn gets the best of Rocky and sends him to the ground. And it's one of those, you know, those, those 80s, 90s action movies where they have that flashback. And when Rocky's there on the ground, he flashes back to how hard he trained to fight Creed in one. How hard he trained to beat Apollo Creed in part two. How he took the punishment of Clubber Lang in, in three, but he, he beat him. And then he thought about how he fought the gigantic Russian who was actually a real prize fighter in real life. Dolph Lundgren. And then in number five, he lays down, but finally old Mickey. He, he sees Mickey and Mickey says, get up! Get up, you bum! Because Mickey loves you. And often when we hear messages like these, we can compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul and say, I could never be like him. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be like Paul. I want you to be like me. You may have been disobedient in 2012. You may have had a time in your life where it's dead towards the things of God, or so it seems. But the Lord is saying, get up, get up! 2013, get up because Jesus loves you. Because Jesus loves you. 